people throughout the ages have developed different kinds of theories on how to really know a person. Because you know there's a difference between what people say about themselves and who a person really is. If you ask a person, so are you a basically good person? Everyone's going to say yes. Very few people say no. If any of you have ever seen the movie Shrek, you know the donkey says that people are like an onion. <laughs> and there are different layers. Yes, Shrek said that. Same thing. People are like onions, they would say. And what they mean by that is actually something called social penetration theory that says that people have an outer shell to them and you have the things that are less personal. You'll, when you first meet someone, you're at the outer layer. So you'll say, hi, what's your name? Oh, my name's Alan. And oh, what do you do? And things that don't require a lot of investment in a person. You know, if you just say hi to someone, you say, hi, my name's Alan or whatever. And let's say that that person died that you just met and all you said was your name, it's not like you're very invested. You'd be shocked, wow, that person died, but you didn't invest a lot of time and energy and effort in that person. But it, let's say you shared your deepest, darkest secret with one person and that person passed away. Then you have a little bit more investment. So they say there's different layers to a person, but how can you actually know that core of who a person is? Now that's just one theory that people have come up with. And they'll say that you can't just jump into the deeper layers. You can't just walk up to the person you don't know and say, so what's your deepest, darkest secret? Because no one's going to tell you. That's a very personal thing for a person. But people have these first impressions, right? When you first meet someone, you, you say something about yourself. Hi, my name is, and, and you go into your traditional way of introducing yourself. But maybe you've had a bad impression of someone. I can think of a time in which I... Uh, I met a girl and we were hanging out and all she talked about was her ex-boyfriend that was a Satanist who used to sacrifice, sacrifice goats. <laughs> and this was the only thing I knew about this person is that she liked to talk about her boyfriend, all the, her ex-boyfriend all the time who sacrificed goats. And so I never talked to her ever again. That was a bad first impression. I uh, was at Barnes & Noble not too long ago, and I see these, this couple who's dressed up very nicely, and like they look like they've just been on a date, and they're concluding their date, and they end it with a handshake. And I was like, oh, that must have been, how bad does your date have to go in order for you to be like, well, uh, it's nice knowing you, and then you just kind of leave. Uh, I know one of the things for me that really is a pet peeve of mine is a close talker. You ever have a close talker in your life? A person that's just like right up here, like in your face when they're talking. And I developed a technique to subvert this. What I do is I slowly, you know, as I shift weight with my hips, I just take a step back. And then I take another step back. So it just looks like I'm, like I'm shifting weight. But really what I'm doing is I'm taking one step back. But then the real test comes. Do they take a step forward? And most often they do, which makes it more awkward. So a first impression can ruin your opinion of a person because we base a lot of our opinions of people on little things that really don't matter. Oh, I don't like the, per the way that that person looked at me or, you know, when I, do you know that person? No, but the way that they always talk about me or just I sense something weird about that person. So how do you overcome a bad first impression? Usually by a testimony. One way to overcome those bad first impressions, let's say that you 
had uh, someone in your life at your school maybe, and you completely just thought they were ridiculous. and like, I just don't like the way that person looks at me and whatever. But then you have a friend, a mutual friend that says, oh, really, a, a really nice guy. It's just that they have something really terrible going on in their life right now. They just lost a, a family member or something. And then you feel like a jerk. You're like, oh, there was a reason behind those looks. And there's a reason behind that kind of emotion. So it's a testimony that brings to light who a person really is. And you see, your life is a testimony to who God is. And your life is a testimony to who you are. Your life itself is a voice, always talking about yourself. Because people like to use their voices, their physical voices, to talk about themselves all the time. Oh, I'm a great person, or I'm really not that bad of a person. But your life is really what speaks the truth about who you are. One major difference between Christianity and every other religion is the amount of evidence that testifies of its truth. You see, God didn't just write the book and say, and you better believe it, but there's a testimony of, uh, that it is really of God himself. Maybe you've gotten a bad first impression of who God is based on what people say, based on what you've heard about God. And you say, well, I would never try church. And maybe you're here tonight and you're just like, I don't even know why I'm here, but I just gave it a shot. Perhaps by the testimony of what God has done in other people's lives and the testimony of scripture itself, you can see that God is loving and that God wants a relationship with you, contrary to your bad first impression. And so people ask, why, there's, why, why in, in the Bible is there four gospels? You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It seems to all say the same story. Why are there four? Well, that's to testify of its truth. God wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this book is from him. It's not the blind faith. It's a faith that is attached to a person. And so he'll give you scientific evidence based on the Bible. We'll have historical evidence to all testify of who God is. In John chapter 20, verse 31, it talks about the purpose of this book. It says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the reason why this book was even written. And that's why we're going through it right now in our Leap in the Dark series. It's because we believe by simply reading the word of God, you will know who he is. Last week, we learned the introduction to this book. We learned that God stepped into human history to shine light into the darkness. He fulfills every single need, and since God is a perfect artist, no part is without purpose. Doesn't matter how insignificant you feel, doesn't matter if you feel worthless, because God breathed life into dust, and no one has a use for dust. No one makes dust uh, statues and no one plays games with dust. You just get it out of the house. But if God created life, mankind, from the dust, he can also do that with any part of your life. And in this passage, what we see is that Jesus is about to begin his ministry. So the author, John, the apostle, he started off from the beginning, the very beginning, to talk about Jesus entering human history. And that's why he talks about it with this awesome language. And now he, he says in verse 19, now this is the testimony of John. 
when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? By the way, testimony of John, this being John the Baptist, a different John than uh, the apostle who wrote this book. Says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Verse 21. Or verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Who was John the Baptist? That's the first question we got to ask tonight. Who was he? Well, John the Baptist was actually the cousin of Jesus. He was born before Jesus. So he's a little bit older. And what we see in Luke chapter 1 is that God picked out his name. He sent an angel to his parents to talk about John who was going to come and pave the way for the Savior who was Jesus. And we know that God has significance in names, in choosing names. He doesn't arbitrarily just give a name. It's like, oh, it just sounds good to call him John. But he chose it for a purpose. And the name John means God is a gracious giver. And we know that he is. He gave his only begotten son. He's also from a priestly family, John the Baptist was. And because he's from a priestly family, he was supposed to, by birth, be trained in the way of a priest, to dress a certain way, to be in those robes, be in the temple. And instead, what we see is he did something very different. He wore camel's hair, the Bible tells us. He ate locusts and wild honey. Very strange priest. Not very typical. And what I love is that God uses the most strange people, people like me, that you don't expect to be teaching the word of God. And he, I think God prides himself in using the most useless, worthless by the world standards people and shows his glory through them. I'm speaking of myself because I think I am worthless and useless. John was also filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, the Bible says. And so what we see in John's ministry is that although he seemed to be this crazy weirdo that just lived in the desert, ate locusts and bugs and whatever, he had this undeniable power that was behind his words. And so he got a lot of followers and he started baptizing people, hence the name John the Baptist. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That power was attributed to God, not to himself. And because of that, because it wasn't his own power, he was able to stand up to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, and call them vipers, brood of vipers, and call them all these names, not just because he felt like it, but because God instructed him to, because they were not going the way of the Lord. They did not believe. And he said, you guys think that you're so special just because you are a Jew and just because God has chosen you, but God can raise up children even from these stones. He doesn't need you guys. And so John had that boldness, not of his own boldness, but through the Holy Spirit. And so what I really love about John the Baptist is that he really was a man who was wholly committed to the mission of God. Do you know anyone like that? A man who was wholly committed to the mission of God. I think of Paul, the apostle, 
who gave up everything. He said, I count all things as loss for the sake of knowing God. All as rubbish. He didn't count his own life dear to himself because he knew that the treasures in heaven were better than the treasures on earth. That was Paul. So he lived his life tortured every day, being stoned every day, and people would take him out into the streets, beat him. And then I, in my devotions, I'm going through the book of Acts. So it's so, so exciting for me to read that and see that he gets beaten. But then right after that, you see the brethren come around him and he just picks himself up. He's like, all right, time to go back. And he goes back to the exact same city and preaches the exact same gospel. He's not ashamed. Why? Because there's a power behind the word. And he was wholly committed to that power. I think of Andy Dean, someone in my life, a contemporary example, a man who was wholly committed to the mission of God. And though he might have done things that I thought were a little strange sometimes, what I really admired about Andy, and I'm sure many of you do as well, our former youth pastor, is that he always got so excited about reading the word of God. He didn't know all the answers. He didn't claim to be this intellectual, but he loved digging into that book. And then I remember, you know, I'd share an office with him and he would just share daily different things. He's reading his devotions and, and talk about how excited he was uh, about the word of God. And so that's a person I think about. I also think about Joey Rozek, uh, my former youth pastor who taught me. And it, it seems like he didn't have any other hobbies in life. Like, I have different hobbies. I like to climb, and I like to make music and stuff. It seemed like Joey didn't spend time doing anything else except reading the Word, teaching the Word, and blessing other people. That's a man wholly committed to the mission of God. You see, these people are voices that are speaking of the Word, not their own voice. They're not speaking of their own message, but they are messengers of the message, of the Word. And I think there's a part of us that's always skeptical about these witnesses, these people that are wholly committed to the mission of God. We're always skeptical. You know, you watch those ads on Weight Watchers or whatever, and you, you know they're Photoshopped. It's not the same person. They just take them and they shrink their belly, and you see, like, the image is warped a little bit. And you know that, okay, they're lying to me. And so I think there's a part of us, as you're a high school student, there's a part of you that looks at me, looks at us leaders, and asks, is this legit? Is this really what it looks like to walk with God. Are they really reading their Bible when they're at home? Are they really praying? He says, I pray for you all the time. Does he really pray for me? Well, your life is a voice to the uh, mission and message of God. What these, these people saw is that they saw the promise when Psalm chapter one, verses one through three says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. They knew it. They knew by delighting in the law of the Lord, by reading this book, Whatever they do would prosper. Maybe not the way they intend. Maybe not the way they expect. But they have the faith to believe that the riches in heaven are greater than the riches on earth. What does your life say about what you are and who you are? What does your life speak? If you are a voice, what are you saying about yourself? 
You might say, I am a kind person. I'm so gracious. I'm so loving. I'm so compassionate. But how do you act around others? I never get angry. I always say that. And I find myself getting angry sometimes. Who are you? That's what these Pharisees asked in verse 19. These Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John the Baptist, who are you? And so we know who John the Baptist is, but who are you here in this audience today, here in this youth group today? How would you introduce yourself to someone you never met? You might say something like, oh, I love to play soccer. I love to do this and that. And, you know, I go to this school. And we talk about different things, but realize that you won't know who you really are until you know who Jesus is. You see, these, these priests and Levites were sent to John the Baptist because they're like, he's baptizing people. But this is strange. We're going to get a little bit to that a little bit later about what baptism meant back in the day. But they want to know, what is, what is he about? Is he the Messiah? Is he Elijah? Is he the prophet? And they want to ask these questions about who he was. And what John the Baptist did is he pointed right to the scriptures. He didn't speak on his own accord. He said, I am, and he quoted the Bible, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now you might say to me, why won't I know who I am until I know who Jesus is? Where did you come up with that idea? Well, only, it's because only God knows what you were made to specifically do. If God is your creator, only he knows what you're created to do. Craig Rochelle, a pastor, once said this, if you don't know the purpose of something, all you can do is misuse it. And I usually use this example of if you have a hammer and you don't know what it's made for, let's say that you're just some, I don't know, in this remote tribe in Africa, and then you find a hammer, you have no idea what to do, and you start using it as a toothpick, and you start chipping off your teeth instead, and you're like, oh, that hurts. You might get some use out of it. You might get the junk out of the middle of your teeth, but it wasn't its intended purpose. So a lot of us are using our lives in ways that it was never meant to do because you haven't found your true meaning. You haven't found your true purpose. And what happens is people in our world are going through identity crisis because what they thought they knew about themselves turns out to be wrong. As you'll shortly be doing when you go to college, people change majors all the time. I got my first degree, my associate's degree in uh, speech and theater for acting. I thought I was going to be an actor. Didn't happen. I got my second degree, my bachelor's degree in public relations. Didn't happen. Most people tell you that they change it a billion times because they don't know what they want to do. You don't, like, people are asking you, especially juniors and seniors, like, well, what college you want to go to? What do you want to be? It's like, I don't know. I didn't know when I was in college. And that's because we're kind of, unless you know your creator and you're listening to his voice, you're not going to really know what you were made to do. So not only are we wrong about ourselves, what happens is we'll be wrong about other people. How many of us are so convinced that you love someone when you're 13? And then the next year, oh my gosh, how could I ever like that person, right? It just happens like that. But at the moment, you're like, I know this person is the one. There's no one else. And then the next year, you're just like, yeah, I have no idea why I ever like that person. The person smells so bad. And what happens is, since we'll be wrong about 
not only who we are, but other people, everyone's looking for their savior. Someone who will redeem America, right? That's what everyone's looking for in our day and age. A lot of our parents, adults, they'll be saying, well, if only there was a president that would make everything right. If only there was a governor, if only government was back the way it should run, then everything would be okay. A perfect president, a perfect relationship. If only I was in a relationship with that perfect person, everything would be okay. If only I had a loving family. But you see, these are messed up versions at best. Even the most perfect person for you that you can envision is a messed up version of the relationship that God wants to have with you. Only God is the perfect one who designed you to be in harmony with his plan, his painting, and his story. And so what happens is people thought John the Baptist was the savior. And they said, maybe this could be the Christ. Because here in this time period, everyone was looking to a savior. Everyone started naming their kid Jesus because they wanted him to be the Christ. But John's whole job was to point to the main event. He was just a messenger. Now, when you have a messenger, a messenger doesn't go to talk about themselves. All they do is give the message given to them by someone else. If you look at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, just turn there real quick with me. I want to read that passage of what John quoted. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. Or starting in verse 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? You see, this is exactly what John did. He had this message given to him, and he said, what shall I cry? And it says, all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Can you imagine if you like someone very much and you tell your friend and, I don't know, for whatever reason, you don't work up the courage because you're a ninny and you're like, you don't want to tell that person. So you're like, maybe if this person delivers the message for me, they'll love me. And so you send your messenger, but the messenger confesses their love for the person. Wouldn't that be messed up? It's happened to me before. Anyway, <laughs> self-disclosure, number 501. <laughs> no, it really didn't happen to me before. But that would be messed up because the messenger isn't supposed to speak on his own accord. And you see, what he says is, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what is that statement I'm supposed to proclaim, he asked. All flesh is grass. We as people will fade away. You and I will fade away. Your voice, when I stop speaking today, my voice will stop being heard. But the words keep on going on. And that's exactly who Jesus is. He's to be testifying of the word. As we learned last week, the word is Jesus. He is the voice, the instrument to bring out the word. But just as the voice stops, you stop hearing the voice, the word carries on. 
We're not created to be the message, only to point to the messenger. Now, John could have taken those followers that he had, pointed to himself and be like, hey, you know what? This is great, but let's, let's talk about how great I am. But the voice was only a means to get that message across. You know, when you listen to a song, you might listen to a song because the voice is just so intriguing. The person just sings so well, the, the guitars or whatever. But really, the meaning should be in the lyrics. And it's not always that way. I have one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, they had these abstract lyrics about leopards and whatever. And I was just like, man, what does that mean? And then I looked up the artist and like, because I was just like wrestling in my mind, what does it mean with the mountaintops and leopards and whatever? I looked up the meaning behind the song and I found out he was just randomly saying whatever sounded good. I was like, really? There is no meaning to be behind your words? He just made up whatever sounded good? And he's just like, yeah, it sounds pretty good. I'm just leopards, mountains, whatever. And you see, there's something wrong about that because we want the message. But today in our age, what happens is people pay attention more to the voice than to the message. Isn't that true in our churches? A lot of people will go to a youth group where it just sounds good. Yeah, I really like the people there. I really love the worship there. It just seems so like spirit-led because the, the guitar solos are so cool and whatever. And people attention, pay attention to the voice rather than the word. And I can think of a couple churches where I've listened in and like to their podcast and it'll be all psychology, all talking about how to make a friendship based on a proverb or something. And there's absolutely no... Uh, lasting uh, exhortation from the word of God behind that. And because of that, it's like, how are people actually fed? They're under the, the guise of thinking that they're in the will of God because they're in a church, they're listening to a message, but it's not the word of God. And we know that that's the only thing that lasts. But besides that, we need to remember a couple things tonight. As John was asked, who are you? He confessed in verse 20 and did not deny, but confessed... I am not the Christ. We also have to remember, you are not the Christ. You are not the Savior of the world. And you probably are thinking right now, well, yeah, that, I'm not going to even write that down because that doesn't apply to me. I don't pretend to be God. But think about it. When your friend is going through a hard time, do you direct them to the Word of God or to yourself, to your own advice? When your friend's crying about something, maybe a, a relationship or something that's happening in their family, do they say, no, it's okay, let me solve your problem. And you start talking about things and speaking on your own wisdom, or do you give them the word of God and using the principles behind the word of God? See, a lot of people want to solve the problem. Be the one that encourages them and be like, yeah, you are so great. I'm so thankful for you. You're such a good friend. Give me a big hug. And you're like, yes, I am a good friend. I will continue to be a good friend. I am always there for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, those are the types of friendships that we're starting to build, but that's not right because it's taking away the glory of God. We're only to be the messenger pointing to the word. Also need to remember, you are not the focus. Ask yourself this. Is your goal to draw attention to yourself or draw attention to God? And so I know it's, it's hard to actually think about it, but if you look at your Facebook profile, your Instagram, what most people do, if you're anything like me, is you'll put 
pictures of yourself in your best light and the best locations, you know, especially when I was in high school and you know, I had a MySpace. I'd always take pictures of myself in like Japan or wherever I was going that like looked like, oh, wow, that person's so cool. He travels a lot. Oh, is that Japan? Wow, that stuff is in Japanese. That's amazing. And because you want someone to affirm you and give you the most likes, the most comments or on whatever. And in the same way, people are, are drawing attention to themselves rather than God by the way that they live their life. Maybe it's the way that you dress. Maybe you're like, I don't even have a Facebook. Doesn't apply to me. Maybe it does because you dress in a way that draws attention to yourself. Now that verse doesn't apply to me because I just try to look ridiculous, which is a good thing. No. But people uh, in our day and age want to feel affirmed when that affirmation can only come by God. The affirmation that completes you. The affirmation that you need to fill that hole in your heart. Otherwise, you're always going to be doing something more drastic. You know, the minute that people stop looking at you, you're going to do whatever it is. You'll be showing a little bit more skin or you'll, you'll do whatever you can because you need that affirmation. But you are not the focus. No one watches a game show for the audience. You ever watch a TV show and you're watching like The Price is Right and you're, you're looking at the audience like, wow, look at the audience. Unless your friend is in the audience. Hey, you should watch the game show because tonight I'm going to be on it. And then all your friends watch it, not for the game show, but for the audience. But it's never made to be that way. I remember when I was in California years ago, I, was on, I wasn't on The Price is Right. My friend was and I was in the audience. And so they were doing like... Uh, a filming for another game show right afterwards. I forget which one it was. But I was in, in the audience in the back right behind the person who was speaking. You know, So the game show host was talking to this guy. And I had my panda mask. Any of you see my panda beanie? Head on my head. And I was like, I have the best idea ever. Because I see myself on the TV. I'm in the camera shot. I just pull the panda beanie over. And I just have this panda mask on. And everyone in the audience starts laughing and like cracking up and like the game show host had absolutely no idea. He's like, I'm so funny today. This is great. But that's not the way it's meant to be. Are you happy or are you only happy, I should say, when God puts you in the spotlight? When I get the most attention, that's when I'm really happy. God, why aren't, why aren't I being used right now? How come I'm not on stage right now? How come they get to lead worship? How come they get to teach? How come they get to be used? And I just have to sit on the sidelines. Are you content just being where God has you, even if that means not in the direct spotlight? You see, in our world, we esteem people that are up in front and, and people that teach the word of God and they're visible for everyone else to see and say, wow, that person is mightily used by God. But you know what? The Bible says, he who is great in the kingdom of men will be least in the kingdom of heaven and vice versa. So if you really want to be great, be that person that's cleaning up the bathrooms when no one sees. That honors your parents. That fills up their gas tank when they don't ask you to when you use their car. That person that makes dinner for their parents when they don't ask you. The dude that does things without anyone even knowing that you did those things. You see, God himself showed us how much he loves us by giving up the most important thing to him. And sometimes what happens is, well, I can't give up the spotlight. I can't give up 
you know, whatever it is that you've built for yourself, maybe it's your reputation, maybe it's your sport. A lot of people form idols out of things that were never meant to be worshipped. And so whatever it is that you define yourself by, that hobby or that career or that even schoolwork, success itself can be an idol to some people. And sometimes God asks us to lay down those things so that he could use us in a more powerful way. And I've had some things in my life that I'd had to give up for the sake of God. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, it says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him de deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Tim Keller, a pastor, said, We must not just be willing to give up our idols. We must also be able to tell our idols, Because I have God, I can live without you. Are you the type of person that says, yeah, well, I know that's really important to me. I know that person's really important to me, but I could give it up whenever I want. But it's not enough for you just, just to say that. We also have to tell those idols, because I have God, I can live without you. I can live without the relationship. I can live without that hobby, that career, that school, that thing that I've dreamed of, that thing that occupies most of my daydream space. I can let go of that because I have God. The next thing that we got to realize in, that, in the fact that we are not the Christ is that you are not in control. Because you see, we can try to prepare for when disaster strikes and have everything in order, but only God knows the future. Only God is omniscient and knows all. Only God is capable of guiding us in the dark. This past week, many of you kept up with the news and those terrible tornadoes that ripped through Illinois. There was a community of 16,000 people that these tornadoes destroyed almost the entire town, but only eight people died. You want to know the reason behind that? According to the Washington Post, the reason why there is such a low fatality rate is because most of the families were in church and all the churches were undamaged. Not one church was blown away. Isn't that amazing? Now, I'm not saying that God always does those kinds of things, but I think it's kind of neat that a secular news group reports something like that, that God upheld people and protected them, even in the storm. Psalm chapter 127, verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You see, unless God's behind what you're doing, it's going to fail, because only God is the one who never fails. Man is imperfect. Man is incapable of governing each other. I, a lot of us want to be in control all the time and wish that, like, if only things were working out the way I planned, if only things go the way that I plan my day, you know, you start your day and things don't get done and, like, the, you wanted to hang out with people, that fell through, people flaked on you, and you just wish you were in control. But we were never made to be in control. Only God was. Some of you may also know in the news, we had the Toronto mayor who's just going crazy now. And what happened is, in case you don't know the story, he was caught smoking crack. And he says, why is it that just because I smoke crack, I can't govern the city of Toronto? Why does that disqualify me as governor? And so because of that, in the news, he's going crazy. And he's, he start, it just gets worse and worse. And um, the point is, that we all have imperfection in us. And some of us feel like we still should be the ones telling God what to do with our lives. God, you don't understand. You gave me this gift and I need to use it. 
God, you don't understand you give me this hobby and, and I'm gonna use it for your glory, but I have to do it my way. But you are not in control. You have sin in your life. You can't see the way that the perfect creator sees your life. So going on, he says, what, what then? Are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. Elijah and the prophet. Elijah was prophesied in Malachi that Elijah was to come before the great day of the Lord. And so the strange thing is that Jesus himself says, if you're willing to receive in Matthew chapter 11, John is the Elijah that is to come. I believe it's Matthew chapter 11. And so John didn't see his own significance in his ministry. Now I believe that Elijah is still coming again. But beyond that, he was a type of Elijah that was to come. And John didn't even see that significance in his ministry as Jesus did. And maybe you're that type of person who you look at yourself so lowly that you don't see that God has that plan for you, that God wants to use you. He also said that I am not the prophet. Now the prophet goes all the way back even further to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses says that God will raise up a prophet uh, amongst the brethren, amongst the, the people. And that was a prophecy that the prophet was supposed to come and pave that way. But he just says, I'm the one of the voice, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord to pave that way for the king. So basically what would happen is you had these valleys and you had these roads. And when a king was coming, you would have to level out everything so that uh, the king could go without any harm, without any problems as he brought his carriage. And so John's saying, I'm, I'm a nobody. All I am, I'm a voice and I'm just making straight the way of the Lord, preparing those hearts, telling them to repent. Look at verse uh, 24 with me. It says, now those who, were sent, those who were sent were from the Pharisees and they asked him saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, to give you background on this little passage, the Pharisees and Levites uh, were not going up to him asking like, why do you baptize? Is this some new Christian thing that you guys are doing? Baptism was a thing back when this was written, but that was used for Gentiles to become Jews. So if you, you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, you would have to be baptized. And that was showing that you wanted to identify with the Jewish people. So then he was like, you're baptizing Jews. How does this work? Are you the Messiah? And he says, no, I'm not. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he says, no. So they're really confused and they want to know who he is. And he says in verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. Some of us have the same predicament where you're going through your life asking yourself, where is God in my circumstances? Where is God in the difficulties? But maybe there's one among you whom you do, you do not know. Some, someone who's standing in your midst. Maybe God is around you and you don't even realize it. You're just denying those opportunities. You know the story of when Jesus was walking with those two on the road to Emmaus. And they're talking about Jesus and they're asking him questions, not realizing that they were walking with Jesus, talking about Jesus. And as they're talking about him, they're like, you didn't hear about the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus says, what things? That's like my excuse to use that with everyone. It's just acting dumb and how I know that's not a sin. You know, when people ask me like, well, did you do that? What, what things did I do? You know, you just kind of play it off because Jesus did it. But 
He's going on the road to Emmaus, not realizing these people, not realizing that Jesus was right in their midst. And you can know Jesus by name and not know him by person. You may study the Bible. You may grow up in a Christian school. You may study the Bible all your life and grow up in a Christian home and still not know who Jesus is, not know his power, not know what he can do in a life. And that's what happened here. John was talking and Jesus was literally in the midst of the people being baptized. And the people around them did not know it. So Jesus is watching from the sidelines. What is John going to say? And John testifies of Jesus. Look in verse 27. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. When he says that, what he means is back in the day, if you were a servant, there was one thing that you didn't have to do. And that was to wash the feet of your master. Even if you're a servant, you weren't to wash the feet because their feet were really gross back then. They'd walk all day in sandals and shower every day. It was bad. And John says, his sandal strap, I'm not even worthy to lose. And that was an unthinkable thing in the day. Like you wouldn't wash their feet to begin with. But he says, I'm even more low than that compared to him. Verse 28, these things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Here's a really interesting thing that we can't grasp unless you know a little bit of background. Because when you read this verse where it says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we're reading that with our uh, standpoint and our point of view, which is 2,000 years after the event. So we can look at the whole Bible and say, oh yeah, that's, he's talking about Jesus being the one who took away our sins. But John, when he's speaking about this, is talking about a very different lamb. Because we realize that John himself wasn't really sure of all that Jesus was. In Matthew chapter 11, John gets put in prison. He sends his followers to Jesus asking, are you really the Messiah? Because Jesus did not fulfill his expectations. The Jewish expectation of Jesus was that Jesus would come and take care of their worldly problems, overthrow the Roman government, and fix all the things with evil people. So when he says the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what he's talking about is not, not just this lamb that's like this lamb that's sacrificed and this cute little lamb. He's talking about a warrior lamb that comes and kills everyone and takes all the evil people out of the world. So it's like Lambo coming into the world and taking away the sin. And what's really interesting to me about this is that John, even though he didn't know everything about Jesus, he knew enough to make this prophetic proclamation and place his trust in God. And maybe you're in that same boat where you're not even really sure of all the things that you're hearing. And you're saying, I think that Jesus is God, but I'm not even really sure. Well, place your faith in him and then you'll see. Just as John, he wasn't really even sure of what happens next and he's not really sure what Jesus is going to do. He had a wrong expectation, but he had the right person. And it's not what uh, the details of what you believe, but it's whom you have believed. You don't have to know all the what's. You just need to know the who of what you believe. 
So in verse 28, it says, uh, not verse 28, look at verse 32. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. So what happened here is that as John's recounting some things, he remembers seeing Jesus uh, on the water and, and there's a spirit that descends from heaven like a dove and remained upon him. And God told him that who, who, that person that you see this, this dove remain on this person would be the Messiah. So that's how he had the testimony and that's how he can say, I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. And so maybe you've never actually witnessed before someone's testimony. Maybe you've never realized what God can do in a life. But that's where you got to look to other people. Because John himself needed that witness. And the Holy Spirit gave him that evidence that he needed. But what would it take you to believe in Jesus? Place all of your trust in him. For you Christians today... Remember, your life is a voice. Your life is a testimony. What you say about yourself has to match up with how you live your life. And it doesn't always work that way. But when people see you, will they say the same thing? I have seen and testified that there is a son of God. Or are you pointing to yourself? Are you just being a voice to talk about things about yourself? Or are you about the only one that matters? Joey Rosick the other day, I was talking to him, youth pastor, and we visited him in England um, over the summer. He gave me this exhortation, because if you really look at what's been happening in our youth group, it really is amazing. God is working, and God wants to continue to work. But there's a part of us that wants to just slow down, right? It's just like, well, it seems like God's behind us, and we kind of like let loose a little bit. But if you remember Joshua, when he went into Jericho, and he was uh, after they defeated Jericho, they went into Ai afterwards, which is a smaller city. And they figured, well, if it's a smaller city, we won't have to send as many people. And they lost the battle because they underestimated the enemy. You see, there's an enemy out there that wants to disrupt what's happening here in the youth group. But your job isn't to battle them on your own power. It's to be that voice that testifies of the word. And to be in the word. And to be praying to the word. And by praying to him and, and speaking with him, that's how we get our direction. So it's not enough to just say, I'm going to remain my course. We have to be seeking him all the more. Believing that as we seek him, we will find him. We will gain that greater faith. So for you guys that are Christians here today that have been watching this happen, don't become discouraged. Don't lose heart. Because God wants to use all of us. God wants you to be a voice. God wants you to speak out when you're in your schools. He doesn't want it just to be a one-night thing and then we just move on with our lives. And if you're not a Christian here today, are you willing to hear the voice of God? Are you willing to listen to that conscience? Every one of us has this feeling inside of us when we're doing something wrong. And you know that you've done something wrong. Are you willing to listen to that voice and say, maybe there's something to what he's saying? You know, I am not the most eloquent person when it comes to preaching. And that's the point of tonight's message. The point isn't to direct yourself to a voice and, and end a message and be like, wow, that person was such a great speaker. Wow, that's such a great pastor. We can always talk about 
you know, researching on YouTube and going to different churches and listening to different speakers and be like, wow, that was so eloquently put. But are we giving more glory to men or more glory to God? The word is the thing that changes lives and the word is a thing that lasts. You know, it's funny because sometimes the most boring messages that you listen to that I've sat in, in service and listened to are the ones that change people's lives. And they're like, you're like, you're falling asleep. You know, I went to a different school back in the day and listening to the message, I'm like, oh my gosh, like when is it going to be over? Being in high school, I was dumb, not knowing that the word is the thing that changes lives. And then I watched like 10 people walk forward and whatever. And I'm just like, wow, how did that happen? It's because there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the word. And all you have to do is just be a willing vessel that says, Lord, I am weak, but you are strong. And I want to see you change a life. In conclusion, how do you become friends with someone who's famous? Think about it. If you don't know a famous person, let's say that you're scheduled to meet the president. How do you get to know the president? How can you form a friendship with the president? You may walk up to him and say, oh my gosh, it's the president. And it's just the sense of awe at his power, right? He has the control to, and the power to put you in prison if he wanted to. How do you develop a real relationship when you have nothing to offer that person? You do it by a mutual friend. If you have someone in common that you can talk about, you say, hey, this is my friend, Joe Smith. You can introduce that person because you know someone in between you. It bridges that gap. So how can you really know the God of the universe? We have a mutual friend through Christ Jesus. And also, you guys are to be the echoes of that voice, the mutual friends that introduce uh, a person to the living God. So don't forget that as you go out this week, remember that God wants to use you to be that voice, to be that messenger. And see what God does. Let's pray. Father.